What's up, producers? Welcome to the EDM Prod Podcast. My name is Sam Matler. I'm your host. And if you're new to the show, this is a show, a podcast, where I talk to artists, producers, industry experts, you name it. If they're in music production or the industry, I want to talk to them and figure out what makes them tick, um, how they got to where they are, and advice for you guys, producers, on how to make better music and how to build your career as an artist. On today's show, we have a producer and DJ called Enamor. He's a progressive house producer. He's had releases on uh, labels like Anjuna Deep, and he's also a management consultant full-time, and he somehow manages to make all this music on the side. He actually uh, mentions near the end of the episode that he's got 20 to 30 projects ready to be released. And like I said, he does all this while working a full-time job, a demanding job at that. So if you've wanted to learn about how to do or how to figure out like work and production balance, then you're going to want to listen to this interview because we talk about that, how to juggle both a job and uh, production as well as DJing. He's a resident DJ in Washington, D.C. And we talk about how that came about. We also talk about workflow, um, how he gets from idea to finished song. We talk about uh, creative block and why he doesn't think it exists. We also talk about his latest release, uh, Ruby, on Anjuna Deep. We talk about how that came about. We talk about the production process behind it. And we also talk about two things attached to that. So the first is a remix competition. This is through Sonic Academy, uh, sonicacademy.com. You can go to there and check it out. Remix competition out today, as well as a start to finish course where he shows you how he made Ruby from start to finish, uh, from scratch. It's about five hours long, I think he says. So you can check that out as well at sonicacademy.com. That is sonicacademy.com. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Check that out and enjoy the interview. Welcome back to the EDM podcast. Today I'm joined by Michael, better known as Enamor. Michael, how's it going? It's good. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm excited to have you on. Uh, I think Pete from Andon introduced us. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yep. Yeah, and we had them on um, not too long. Oh, we had him on not too long ago. It was a great interview. So I want to start by talking about your background. How did you get into music and what's the journey been like so far? Um, so I've been musical my whole life. My parents put me into piano lessons when I was like five or six. Um, I never was super passionate about it though. And I switched to guitar in like high school or middle school maybe. And, uh, played that all the way through high school in like jazz band, that kind of thing. But I was never really playing or learning the music that I liked to listen to, Mm. which was more like the indie rock, classic rock stuff. Um, for guitar, it got a little close, but I think, um, high school, college, I started listening to more electronic music. Like some of the first ones were Daft Punk, Flying Lotus, some of the more like IDM stuff more so than dance music. Mm. Um, and I think like around the time that mashups became really popular, I started to think like, Hey, this is something that I can do. Uh, that's probably going to be fun. Whereas I thought piano and guitar was more of like a chore in a way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
which I, I regret so much because I wish I had taken it more seriously <laughs> in retrospect. But um, so I think I started like making mashups and edits and stuff. Um, and then in college, I started to DJ a little bit and then moved to Ableton. And then it kind of all took off from there. So had you, did you have past experience when you were making these mashups, like using a DAW or did you just go, oh, I'll learn how to do this? Yeah, I just sort of learned how. I mean, it was, I had learned that there were like acapellas and then there were the beats or like the instrumentals. So I was just like, okay, I probably just have to get an audio editor and like slap them on top of each other. And I think I, I literally did that in like audacity. Uh, mm-hmm. And then was like, wait, I need to be able to stretch the times and stuff. And I think the first one I used was an app called traction i don't it wasn't tractor but it, it was like something weird that probably doesn't even exist anymore it rings about um, yeah and i was just you know like googling how to do certain things watching youtube videos so you get ableton and what happens from this point you know is there a moment where you're like man i can do anything i want i can make anything i want because i i had that moment where i'd been playing <laughs> in a band like playing instruments and then i opened up the software it learned a few things and I was like, wow, I'm in complete control of the whole process. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you get that like initial excitement where you learn a couple things and you're like, okay, I get it. Like this is, mm. I'm done. Um, at first I think I was making more like hip hop beats and, and IDM and more like electronica stuff where there's not, I don't want to say as many rules, but like it was just sort of a free for all. Like I was sampling like weird stuff and then just making like weird synth lines that didn't really make much sense. But um, I don't think it was until like two or three years into my Ableton experience that I actually started trying to make dance music because um, I think it was like mid college, like probably 2010, 11, 12, where I was starting to hear like, Afrojack and Avicii and those kind of guys and was like, oh, this is what I should be making because I can then like play it in my DJ sets. Mm. Um, and I think when I started trying to make something like with a goal in mind, trying to cop- copy a different sound, that's when I started realizing that I didn't know anything. Um, mm. It was sort of when I was like a free for all. I was like, oh yeah, I can do whatever I want. But then it was, oh, well, I don't know how to make that sound. I'm an idiot. Like I have no idea what I'm doing. That's so interesting that you came from like the IDM kind of scene into that because, and not to yeah. rip on the IDM <laughs> crowd, but like there's a certain level of pretentiousness when it comes to the, at least how, how I remember back in 2010, 2011 with Avicii and Afrojack was kind of like, oh, that's mainstream, generic, easy to make music, which yeah. I disagree <laughs> with completely. But it's it's funny. Cool. I th- I think it was purely like, college and partying because I, I, in high school, I like was not much of a party. I was very much like right. video games, hobbies, yeah. that kind of thing. And then I got to college and was like, well, the music I'm listening to is like hang oh, out cool. and chill music, but now I'm going to parties. <laughs> like I need to start liking that music as well. <laughs> yeah. 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 So fast forward to, to now you, you've been touring with lane eight for the past year. Um, you've had a bunch of releases, one on Anjuna Deep that just came out, which we're going to talk about. What, like, how did you go from this person just playing around in Ableton to the point that you're at now where you're touring with a very well-known artist 
releasing on some of the biggest labels. How did that happen? Yeah, uh, it wasn't easy. I'll tell you that much. Um, I would say it was around like 20. So I graduated in 2014 um, and I was very much focused on like my my regular career in finance. Um, okay. I like spent a lot of time getting good grades, getting the good job, that kind of thing, making my parents proud. <laughs> and I'd say the first two years after college, I really didn't do much music. I was focused on just doing well at work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was still noodling around like on the weekends. And then I think two years in, probably like early 2016, I just kind of had the realization where I was like, if I do want to do this seriously, then I need to like put in the work. And I don't know if I can do this, this finance job for the rest of my life. Like I might as well give this music thing a shot. Like I was going to shows three times a week. Um, I was like very involved in the scene and I just, I was like, this is clearly where my passion lies. So I should give it a Mm -hmm. shot. So that was 2016. Um, at that point I started just putting in like four hours a day after work and then like 10 hours on the weekends. So it was just like really going head in, trying to learn everything I could, bought a bunch of books, read, read those, watched a ton of YouTube videos and then just started, trying to connect with other producers, that kind of thing, sort of what everyone does when they first start out. And I think really it was just hours and hours and hours and days and days and months of years of time of just honing my craft and getting to the mm-hmm. point where I could send a record to a big DJ and they'd actually listen and, and you know, like it. That makes a ton of sense. It's all about the hours. But my question is, you know, your job is not the easiest job. It's quite demanding from what I've heard, management consultancy. How do you juggle that with putting in like four hours a day? That seems crazy yeah. to me. I, I, I'm definitely a little lucky because I, I don't travel and, and most of my oh, okay. peers would be traveling purely just like luck of the draw. Mm. Um, so basically when I get home, it's just straight onto the computer either starting a song, finishing something, learning something new. And then the weekends are just heavy, heavy time in the studio. And I think it's a lot of just reprioritizing. Like I have my social life basically consists of hanging out with my friends for a little bit and then like kind of pawning them off to my other friends and, and then hopping in the studio or going to shows with them where it's like I'm half networking, half like market research, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. So I really don't do anything else besides like sleeping, working, producing than the occasional show. Makes sense. Do you have any other like routines or habits that help you stay productive while you're in the studio? Yeah. So I think, and this sort of goes to the whole question of like, what do you do when you have writer's block? I think it's one and the same, but the ultimate goal when I go in the studio is just to accomplish something. So sometimes if I'm not feeling creative rather than spend four hours, just like spinning my wheels, if I realize that like, I'm just not feeling it, nothing's really coming together, then I'll just hop on one of my like synths and just start making drum sounds or like Mm -hmm. start making snare rolls, just something that's useful. And then I have this, like I basically made my own enamor sample pack that I can just pull from very quickly. So when creativity does strike, I skip like four hours of time Mm. making stuff because it's already made beforehand. And so so now do you encounter writer's block at all or it's just, you'll go and do that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think writer's block isn't really a thing. I think you can be... I'm glad you like, said that. Yeah, you can be like... I agree. Low on creativity. Um, you can just not be feeling what you're making at the time. But no matter what, I think there's always something you can be doing that can contribute to your your art. Um, I wouldn't say like the cure for writer's block is is managing your social media or like sending out demo emails. Like mm. obviously you're still productive, but that's not going to help. But something that would help is like opening up a synth and doing something you've never done with it before. Or I like, I joke with my pro- producer friends, like just try to get as close as you can to breaking it without breaking it. So just experiment, like take the LFOs as fast as possible and then sync one of them to an oscillator, like just try to make weird noises and eventually you will hit on something that strikes inspiration. And if you spend five hours and you don't, then you either made some cool sounds in the progress that you can save or in the process that you can save, or you learn something new about the software. Like I feel like there's always a benefit of just putting in the time regardless of if you're feeling it or not. For sure. 100% agree. I want to come back to your workflow in just a moment, but with the with the touring, how did you manage your job while traveling? Um, so, so luckily, most of the shows were on the weekend. So I was able to maybe take like a couple Fridays off mm. on PTO and go. Um, I had saved up all my vacation hours for like a year and just like anticipating a lot of traveling for DJing. Um, so I was just taking vacation, you know, maybe a Thursday, most Fridays, just trying to get all my work done from Monday to Thursday and then not have it matter. When you, like, let's say you sit down after work, you're starting a new song and you don't have any form of creative block. What is, what does your workflow look like? You mentioned before that you've basically got the sample pack that you draw from, but do you have any, um, constants in your workflow? Like are there certain things you do every time or does your process change? From song to song. Yeah. So the, I'd say that, well, so the sample pack is more the tools that don't really require that much creativity that you just mm-hmm. want to like throw in once the idea is there. So it's more like drum sounds, effects, like little additions. But sure. I would say the, the bulk of the track, like the hook, is usually what I'm trying to find first. So some people might start off with drums in like a groove. And I find that that's fun. But when I do that, those are the demos that usually never turn into full songs because the, mm. you're then sort of boxed in to create the melody or the hook or whatever the the big portion of the song is. So what I'll do is the reverse where I start just noodling around trying to find uh, a melody or a hook or a chord progression or even just like one sound that I'm I can sit back and say okay, this is this is what's the song's going to be remembered by. And that's something also that I, I tell a lot of new producers is don't pursue a song unless you're starting with something that people are going to be able to remember the song by. Mm-hmm. You can do it. You don't have to do it that way. And you'll, you probably will still make some great songs. But I'd find that every time I start that way, it always is super easy to finish the song. Yeah. It always gets finished and it's always a good track because you're you're being selective about what you spend the next 20 hours on, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it's hard to like just push a hook into an arrangement that's already in existence. Like it's a lot easier to just start with that. Um, 
But a lot of people, they can come up with that hook, but then they find it really difficult to turn that into a full song, into a full arrangement. How do you approach that phase, if you will, of uh, music production? So usually I'll, I'll get to that point where it's like a 16-bar loop. So I'll start with the hook, and then I'll quickly add a drum beat, a bass line, like a groove, and maybe like a couple effects or like a pad, and just sort of have my 16-bar loop. Um, I always actually, I never use clip view in Ableton. I find that I usually get stuck in clip view. And the sooner that I, I start in arrangement view, or if I just start right from scratch with like a 16 bar looped, uh, section, it's a lot better. Um, it might just be like a visual thing for me, but I find that if I can see the 16 bar loop in arrangement view, then it's easier to sort of stretch it out to seven minutes and then subtract parts to make the arrangement. So to answer your question, I guess the way I do the arrangement is subtractive. So mm-hmm. I'll drag that 16 bar loop out for seven minutes and then start starting with the kick. I'll like take out the kick to make the breakdowns. I'll then do any type of drum progression. So like maybe I'll take out the 16th hats for the first 32 bars and then the last 32. So it'll only be in the middle Maybe I'll only put the rides in for 16 bars at the drop, that kind of thing. Um, and just keep shaving away at all the parts until I have like a shell of an arrangement. So the type of music you make, it's very, well, like it evolves over time, becomes more complex as the song goes on. Uh, a lot of people struggle with this. Like they'll make the 16 bar loop. They'll do what you just said, uh, that kind of subtractive arrangement, but they don't want it to sound like too boring or uh, especially in the case of progressive house like it doesn't really go anywhere what advice would you give to them to make their music evolve over time like how do you add stuff in um all that kind of stuff so i think a lot of it is is sort of stepping back and getting a, a big picture view of of like the the tension and the release so if you have if you have this arrangement, you have like the breakdowns and the buildups, at least for my style and like for progressive in general, I think you you're sort of always either building up or or releasing it. So even though your first 64 bars or whatever might be the kick drum, it might be the verse before you get to that first breakdown, you can still think about building up the energy that whole time. So uh you can use risers. That's the most obvious one. Um, just adding drum parts or even just making like your hi-hat a little bit longer decay, just sort, just anything that just continues to build the energy, introducing new parts, just introducing single one shot effects. Um, I think it's, it's just sort of seeing it as a whole and saying, okay, how do I get from point A to point B while increasing the energy the entire time. And sometimes if, if you're really struggling, you can always bring in a track that you like and just, I wouldn't say copy the arrangement, but just use it as a reference. So like, when are they introducing new elements? How are they introducing them? Is, mm-hmm. it, is it a fade in over 15 seconds or is it like a quick introduction? And then that sort of just gives you a framework that you can uh, get inspired by. Yeah, I find that super helpful. I used to pull a song in and then create like an empty automation curve and just map out where I thought the energy was, like the energy levels of the song. 
Mm-hmm. And then I'd copy that with my own project. Um, I can't remember where I learned that. I think it was Dance Music Manual. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very important tip, especially when you're starting mm-hmm. out, because I think one of the hardest concepts to grasp early on is arrangement. Or yeah. I guess it's like how how like subtle attention to detail in arrangement really is what makes a song special. But I don't think you really realize that until later on, or if you're like a really experienced mm. DJ. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say DJing helps with that. And we're going to get to that in a moment. Do you see tension as kind of like the way I view it as macro and micro, like over the whole song, you have maybe two or three um, long buildups and releases, but Inside of those, like inside your 32 bar, 16 bar section, you have other tension builders happening to move into the next uh, phrase mm-hmm. of eight bars or 16 bars. Do you view it like that or more uh, holistically? No, yeah. What you said is is like right on the dot because even just taking the cutoff of the filter on your bass and just move, just kind of curving it up a tiny bit and then right back down that is enough to make that five seconds interesting or taking like a drone and just detuning the oscillator like 20 cents over time and then back up to zero. That's enough to make like 30 seconds interesting. You just need like these small changes that put the listener on edge cap, like grabs their attention and then resolves it. So switching gears for a moment, you're a resident DJ in your city, Washington, DC. How did that come about? I know this is like a dream of a lot of people listening to the show. Yeah, it it was it was also a, an effort for sure. Like I spent a lot of time groveling at the knees of various promoters and going out to their shows every weekend and like, you know, becoming friends with them. Sort of finding my niche as well. I think that's really important. Um, I know in DC when it comes to like the dirty bird style tech house, there's like 40, 50 DJs that all love that style and they can all, you know, like rock a house and pack the place with their friends too. So it's the competition is pretty fierce. I think I was lucky because there weren't too many like melodic progressive type of people at the time, two years ago. Um, So, you know, I sort of got in the ear of all the promoters and was like, Hey, if these people ever come to town, like I can do a good job and I can bring out all my friends. And then I think it really matters is when you get your first opportunity, you really have to knock it out of the park and like not only wow the crowd, but wow the promoter. So my first real opening slot, I brought like 75 people, like every single person I knew, I made sure they were at that show. Um, Luckily, he was like, yeah, you have an open guest list as long as they get here before like 11 or something. So it was free for everyone. So it was a really easy sell. But I think that's really important is you don't want to make it seem you don't want the promoter to think he could have brought anyone and had the same result. Like you want him to think that there's something special and and be patient. Like don't necessarily take the first crappy gig if it's not if you're not going to be able to play what you want to play, you know, like experience is great, but. I think if you're really going to take this seriously, you have to pick and choose and and be patient. Yeah, I've played top forty for seven hours straight, and it's not fun to you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm sure there's someone listening to this who who hears you say that they're like, "Yep, I totally get that." 
but I don't know 75 people. Like I don't have that kind of network. Uh, what should they do? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. And especially if you don't even live in like a big city, then it's, it's probably even tougher. Um, the best advice I can give is try to get as involved in the scene as possible. So you might not know 75 people, but if there's a promoter in your city that's putting on shows where 500 people can show up and enjoy the music, then that's, you can make friends with 75 of those people. Um, it's, it sounds crazy and your people are probably thinking like, what is he talking about? But at least in DC, like there's parties almost every day, certainly every weekend. And if you go to the same club every weekend, people recognize you. I mean, even if it's just the bouncers, like you, you can fold into the fabric of your city's nightlife and especially like the dance music scene. And their people usually are tight knit because they all have the same deep passion for the same type of music. So, you know, just try to make friends. And I know that's like a, that's a hard ask to do, but even if you're not making friends with 75 people and inviting them to the show, just showing up to the same club, to the promoter's event every weekend for two months, he's going to be like, okay, I'll give this guy a chance, you know? Yeah. I think that's really good advice, especially because a lot of people think that they can just do it all online and you can do a lot of networking online and it's an amazing thing but on the local level especially if your goal is to become a resident dj it's hard if you're not going out to these places yeah and you can even think of it at like think of it as if you're starting at the bottom and you go to like the smallest local parties first not like your big promoters that are bringing like Mm -hmm. sasha or something but go to the parties that are all local djs get to know them they have much less to lose or gain to let you onto their party. If it's like a small local thing, even if it's like 15 people in the basement of a bar, like if you start there, you're going to work your way up and that group even might work their way up and you're already a part of it when they get to the top. It's just, you never, you never know. And I wouldn't write off anyone who's like a small party or anything like that. So you've just released a track on Injuna Deep called, Ruby, tell us uh, how that came about, the production process behind it, and so forth. Yep. So um, the whole track started off, um, like I was saying earlier, with like a, a melodic idea, and then I sort of built around that. So I was using my Moog Minotaur, which is a bass synth, but just using it for lead. Um, happened upon that little arpeggio that goes throughout the whole track. Mm. So I came up with that four-bar loop, Um, and then the whole track sort of built itself for the next like two days. It was, it was a lot easier to, like I said earlier, it was a lot easier to sort of build the entire shell around that one idea because straight from the beginning, I sort of, I I knew what the song was supposed to be. Like I, I could imagine it in my head just based off of that little arpeggio because it was like a catchy hook that could, you know, carry the whole song. If you're interested in the, super granular detail i actually recorded a five hour like start to finish course for sonic academy that's out on february 1st um it it is actually a fun exercise because i took a lot of notes on the project file and then literally starting from a blank ableton template rebuilt the entire thing again uh, so it was, a, it was fun and challenging but it goes through all the various detail about the, the track if someone buys this 
uh, through Sonic Academy, what are what are some of the things that that they, that they can expect to learn through watching it? So, on the surface, it uh, you'll see all the plugins that I'm using, and I open all the windows and all the settings. I know early on in my production career, uh, that's the stuff I was really really excited about. Like, what are the exact settings that he's using? Mm-hmm. Um, however. Now that I'm a little more experienced, I realize that's not really the most important part because it's all about, you know, the specific context of what you're doing, yeah. but it's fun to see anyway. Um, but besides that, I, th- I go through all of my various processing techniques. So like once I record something in either from a VST or a synth, like what am I doing after that? How am I getting interesting effects, like more mileage out of each sound? Um, I show like the recording of all of the one-shot effects, how I process my drums. Um, I do a full like mix down and and how I master for the club. It really, it, it literally was me recreating it as close as I could to the original from a blank slate, and I was actually surprised with how close I got um, because I was like, I took a bunch of notes on every single setting and stuff, so I could really try to recreate it. So. I've seen a lot of really great start to finish courses, um, but sometimes the end result is pretty different from the actual track that was released. And I, I hope in this case that that I really avoided that and did a good job, you know, getting it as close as possible. So if people are listening to this now, because this will be up on Feb 1st, this is available. Where can people go uh, to check it out? So it's on sonicacademy.com. Um, it's it's going to be in the progressive house section, but I'm sure it'll be like right on the front page for at least a little while. Um, and as a bonus, they were able to partner with Anjuna Deep to have a remix competition for the track. So I have all the stems of the of the course version, and then I even included some of the stems from the original, um, so people could just have at it and see what they come up with. Awesome. Very cool. So remix competition, start to finish, sonicacademy.com. Make sure to check that out. Uh, And I've got two more questions, Michael, then we'll wrap this up. This is the hardest question that I pitch to guests, by the way. They hate it, but hopefully you can answer it. Let's say you're walking down the street and uh, a UFO comes along. They're going to abduct you. They're going to take you away from earth, but they give you a pen and a piece of paper and they let you write three pieces of advice for producers to leave behind. Three pieces of advice. What is on that piece of paper? Mm, I think I would want to keep it short and sweet and impactful. So I'm going to say uh, work harder, be patient, and have fun. Love it. I think that's the shortest answer to that question. Normally it's like a minute of like just thinking. Well, I've thought about this a little bit because people always ask me like, what am I doing wrong? Or like, what should I really be thinking about? And it's always just like, work harder. Like you can always put in more time. And I think like one of the few things that people don't realize is that no matter how much music theory, well, I guess music theory aside, but like no matter how much production stuff you know, or like there's there's always just going to be a, a a minimum time you have to spend regardless. Yes, yep. and that can always be sped up if 
in, in terms of like months and years, if you're just putting more hours in per day. And at a certain point, like you just have to wait for your ear to catch up mm. with your abilities. I, I think like a lot of young producers just aren't making great music and it's not necessarily because of their techniques or their plugins, but it's like, they just don't know what to listen for yet. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can't really rush that. Yeah. It's, it's literally the only way you can do that is just time. It's also why you shouldn't just take, like when producers say, I've been producing for 10 years, you shouldn't just take that as the metric for their skill level. Because Mm -hmm. I know people who have been making music for 10 years, but they do like one hour every couple of weeks and like they still sound like an absolute beginner. Uh, It's about the hours that you put in, like you said. Cool. So what's coming up for you in the next 12 months that you can share? Uh, So it's definitely going to be a very exciting year. Um, I just partnered up with uh, MixMag um, and I'm now part of their Magnified program. So I think there's going to be a lot of cool stuff happening happening there. Um, I have a remix coming out on February 8th and then another one on the 11th. So a couple new tracks coming and then I have like 20 or 30 songs that are finished, ready to go. Wow. Some of them are signed, some of them are unsigned, but I'm hoping to get all of them out in 2019. That's insane. So thinking it's going to be a, a big year in terms yeah, of man. releases. It's <laughs> huge. Well, Michael, I've had a great conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, finally, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, man. Where can people find you online if they want to, uh, listen to your music, follow you, and just keep up to date. Yep. So uh, my handle on all social media is Enamor Music, except for Facebook, where it's I am Enamor, um, E-N-A-M-O-U-R. I'm on pretty much all social media, and I respond to nearly every message and email. So if you have any questions or stuff, I'm, I'm always open to helping out. 